<laughs> okay, so this morning we're going to do three things. We're going to do a little primer on worship as a whole. I know we've been talking about worship a lot. We're going to be talking about it all the way uh, through Thanksgiving. I lost my piece of paper. Thank you. I'll come to that later. All right. I've lost a lot, brother. <laughs> so we're going to do a little primer on worship, and then a, a part of that primer and kind of our second point are the, what the parts of worship or the elements of worship are. And then we're going to talk about our participation in worship and what that means, um, specifically with the first element, the call to worship. So let me just say what, what, I, what I mean when I say worship. 90% of the time you ever hear me speak when I say the term worship, we're talking about what we do together on a Sunday. There are other definitions. But 90% of the time I talk about it, and probably 96.2% of the time I'm going to talk about it in the next five or six weeks, I'm talking about our gathered time together, corporate or gathered worship, entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise together. It's the language that describes the temple and eventually the synagogue and eventually how the New Testament practices worship. It is the church's weekly public gathering where we encounter God together. Which leads me to another word. And that word is liturgy. Now, don't confuse the word liturgy with smells and bells and incense, vestments or pipe organs, something called high church. I'm talking about not high church or low church, but what we do all the time in worship. I find those terms sometimes helpful, sometimes unhelpful, but they're more about style than substance. And remember, we're trying to get underneath to the foundations. And liturgy is just how we order worship, the elements of it. When we, when we read in your bulletin, Leviticus 9, it says, take a male goat for the sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for the burnt offering and an ox and a ram for the peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. It's four different offerings of Israel, directed, ordered. In Leviticus 23, your other passage, it talks about, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, holy gatherings. They are my appointed feasts. It's about the ordering of the appointed feasts of Israel. Liturgy is a kind of itinerary or a playbill or an order of ceremonies in some way, but in some way it's more of a screenplay or a director's script. Because we don't watch worship, we participate in worship. It's kind of like a, um, I have a friend who does off-Broadway plays in really avant-garde kind of ways. Um, the second, two plays ago, this one that he's doing now is about plants who have feelings. But the one beforehand was actually one, and if you went, went to the play, it was 12 hours long, and you were expected to sleep during it. I told you it was avant-garde. <clears throat> but the audience was a participant in the play. That's more what we're talking about. A 12-hour drama where you wake up and see different things and fall asleep and wake up, just like church. 
<laughs> Sometimes. I should get my horn out when that, I, gosh, I could use that every single week. That would be fantastic. Anyway, <clears throat> so that's the primer of worship, the, the primer if you're British. The parts of worship. The parts of worship are what we call the seas. They are the bedrock, the foundation of what we do each Sunday. Um, and I'm going to just name them for you. They're actually in your bulletin on the top of the page, and they have little, little Redeemer logo-y, ringy things around them. Call to worship, the confession, the consecration, communion, and commission. There's another C called celebration, which is uh, smattered throughout in the whole purpose of worship in some sense. And what today we're going to talk about eventually is the call to worship. Now, you may be wondering why I'm starting a, a, a teaching about worship in Leviticus. What I'm trying to do here is let you see that there is this kind of historic, foundational, deep reality in which God's, all of God's people have participated in for a long time. Leviticus is a book of worship, and it sets the trajectory in, way, in, a, in a way in which the Old Testament and New Testament worshipers have worshipped since. I could almost do the entire sermon series on Leviticus 1 through 9. Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering. Add an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord. And then bring that grain offering mixed with oil. And the Lord will appear to you. Tell them these are the appointed feasts of the Lord. And proclaim them as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts, God says. So these offerings, the burnt, the sin, the grain, the peace, the holy gatherings, all that stuff doesn't, it's not just like some ritual to endure. It is the ground of how God's people worship and have worshipped for millennia. They did this stuff in the tabernacle, or some of it. They did this stuff in the temple, or some or most of it. And then the synagogues. And then Christians saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of these things, of these practices, and they saw themselves participating in all of these seeds, if you will, as part of God's covenant community over time. Right? The, old, the old covenant liturgy laid out biblical ways for responding to God's call to worship. He, he tells Moses and Aaron to call the people together. The Psalms are just one big book of 150 Psalms, 70 of them which start with a call to worship for the corporate people of God, the, the corporate gathering of God's people. The sin offering becomes a confession and assurance. The burnt offering becomes a, a consecration by his word. The prayers and praise and celebration are throughout the Old Testament and the Psalms. The peace offering becomes uh, the Passover and the Lord's Supper. He sets a table for us. The grain offering becomes our bringing our best before the Lord, which is both the offering and bringing our best before the Lord for the world, which becomes our commissioning. The early church did the same kinds of things. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one parallel 
I have a little little book, a little uh, chart out here for you that I wrote several years ago. I looked at it again. I was like, I could have probably done a little better on that. Um, but it's out there in the back if you want to look at it. If you want to take a deep dive, it's just two pages. It's got all the six C's on there. And you can look up all your Bible verses and all that stuff to your heart's content. I found it reasonably helpful for seven years ago when I wrote it. <clears throat> but the, the, what I'm trying to do is simply say this, that the, the liturgy of the altars and the offerings, the feasts and the the ceremonies and the rituals that God called Israel to do actually have our, their place in our day into these five or six C's. And when we get into the New Testament, when you hear the language of the New Testament, it's just thick with this kind of language. The church is called a holy priesthood. That's liturgical language. We're built up into a spiritual temple. You can't get much more liturgical language than that. We offer up living sacrifices. That's all liturgical language. And that's what we do on a Sunday morning as we live those things out. My friend, uh, Reverend Dr. Mark Farley, who, by the way, has a PhD in patristic liturgics, as one does, he writes this, the same cosmic and historical significance of worship at the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament now continues in an even greater and more glorious way in the church. When Christians gather in corporate worship as God's earthly church temple, we participate in the worship of heaven at the true heavenly tabernacle temple, our Lord Jesus. That's what that handout's about, just in case you want to see it. These are categories that are <clears throat> broad stroke. Calling, confession, celebration, consecration, communion, commission. You can use other words. But that's the warp and woof that's going on at a worship service. But today, the second half of the sermon will be simply about the call to worship, starting with the where we start in a worship service, the call to worship. Now, lots happens before the call to worship. We all know that. There's greetings, there's announcements, there's handing out bulletins, there's wrangling children, there's apologizing for the way you walk your fuss on the way car drive in. There's just lots of things that happens. And it is our tradition at Redeemer to make sure there's something playing beforehand because we enter his courts with thanksgiving. This is what church bells were for. If I had my druthers, we'd have speakers in the parking lot and we'd have music playing. And when you got out, music would already surround you. Little, little, little memories of songs that you know would be in your heart and mind and on your lips. But I don't want you to be confused. A worship service starts at the call to worship. This is why we have announcements before the call to worship, by the way. Announcements aren't a part of worship. There are plenty of churches all over the world that have figured out how to get to 110 without announcing it in a worship service. The call to worship starts when God speaks. All the worship isn't one of us standing up here 
and saying, like trying to wrangle you in or flicking the lights because it's time to get to your seat. The call to worship is God himself speaking to us because he is the primary practitioner in worship. The primary participant in worship. The call to worship is this, that the God of the universe beckons us to him together as his beloved to bring honor to all that he has done and to love us in the midst of it. And I use the word beckons on purpose because it's kind of somewhere between command and invitation. He is the king. It is a command. He is the servant king. It is an invitation. He beckons us forth. Scripture is full of this kind of language. It actually makes it a little odd when you read the Psalms on your own, as if it was just a personal devotional, which it can be and is, and rightly so, but the Psalms are actually written for public worship. Now you have the classics, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've got Isaiah's version of that same classic. That was Jesus, by the way. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. I don't even know what it means to come buy with nothing. But it is participatory, right? Certainly that. There's spicy ones in the Psalms. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. Sometimes we need to come in and tremble. It's okay. He's enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he's exalted above all the peoples. And sometimes it's, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. All the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Or it's very personal. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked up upon you in the sanctuary, in the corporate people of God. Beholding your power and your glory, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. These are God's words given to us for us to speak to one another in the assembly of his people. I have never called you to worship. No one ever who sat here or stood here at Redeemer has ever called you to worship. God has called you to worship. We just used his words. And then there's Psalm 100, which you read. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is the goat of them all, right? Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it's he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates, temple language, with thanksgiving, and his courts, temple language, with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I barely skimmed the top of the Psalms. I just did my Spotify playlist version. 
So God clearly speaks, and he starts his own worship, and he calls every single one of us every single time we gather to this place. Can you get your mind around the fact that Psalm 100 has been used how many times in how many places over three and a half millennia that these same words, God speaking to us over all those different types of groups of people, ever. Every dialect. I almost projected to you what it looks like in Hebrew, so you'd be like, I don't even know what any of that looks like. But it's still the same thing. And all those people called by one voice, the voice of God himself, the God who made us and redeemed us, the God who sent Jesus to pay for our sin and restore our brokenness, the God who sent his spirit to activate all that reality in us, that's the God who calls us to worship, who beckons us to himself so he can reorient our lives to the eternal truth in the very particular realities of our life and bring us to him which is our home? That's it. I know people in America and people in Western culture are like, they care about the music and the sermon. The call to worship is glorious. This is what God is doing. He's inviting us in. And we respond in singing. But we're responding because he initiated it. His calling. It is a scripted life event. It is an avant-garde play, a dynamics response to the triune God who calls us to himself. It's not Saturday Night Live, it's Sunday Morning Live. And the audience and the director are the lead actors. God himself, and he invites us to participate in the life that he shares with the Son and the Spirit. This is an amazing reality. And how can we begin to orient our Sunday mornings accordingly? The word rote means two things, or it means several things. But rote could be meaningless repetition. The older word for rote also meant of the heart. So what we need is of the heart repetition. If you listen to our resident theologian Jennifer Melton Sanders podcast, you'll hear her talk about being called and she talks about like being called from a friend and how excited you are for that. Someone you can't wait to talk to, not the friend that you're not so excited to talk to, the friend you actually want to talk to. She's getting at what the expectations of a Sunday morning are, the very first part, how we start the whole thing, the call from God himself. And she knows, as we all know, that that is a friend who also has like the power of the universe at their hands. I guess one of my only applications is be here for it. Not just physically and on time. Be here for it. With your whole self. You're not going to get it right every time. It's not about getting it right. We'll soon figure that that's not actually the case or prerequisite for being called by God. But what a privilege and an honor. What a responsibility. What if your favorite actor or politician or influencer or leader called for you to visit them? You might prep a little bit. Just a little bit. I mean, I know your fit would be right. Not so worried about that. But would your heart be right? 
You know our bulletins are available online well before Sunday. What do you mean to just like download it or look at it? See what the call to worship is. See what the service is going to be about. See how the people who have labored on your behalf because they love you and mostly because they know that God loves you have prepared for it. Maybe just think about it a little bit. Read it. I don't know. I'm not trying to like heap something on you. I'm literally saying a really important person just called you. What do you want to do about it? But that really important person just called you and you don't have to be nervous about it because he loves you. He's welcoming you to himself. So even the stuff you're like, we got to talk about this first. The call precedes the confession on purpose. We all know we got some confessing to do, but the call precedes it and our response in worship precedes it, rightly and properly so. Because we're not defined by our sin, but by his glory and his kindness to us, to call us. Again, it's hard sometimes to be here on time and ready and hard. I'm just trying to say the call to worship is a hear ye, hear ye moment. That's it. There is pomp and there is circumstance. And the pomp is God himself and the circumstance is wherever we are. Beckoned and called. Yes, amidst all our distractions, all our ridiculousness, ridiculousness, you were invited. Okay. I could have preached 75% of that sermon and not been a Christian. What does this have to do with being a Christian? What does this have to do with being Jesus? The Old Testament practices find their fulfillment, their glory, the church's wonder in Jesus. Jesus isn't just a priest. He's the high priest. He's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Go look that one up. Jesus doesn't just minister the word. He is the word. Jesus doesn't just pray. pray. He intercedes our prayers. He doesn't just enter the temple. He is the temple and then makes us part of the temple. He's the cornerstone on which we are built. He isn't just the Passover. He, he, just, he doesn't just represent the Passover or serve the Passover. He is our Passover. He is our Paschal Lamb. He doesn't just lead our singing. He sings over us. He doesn't just offer sacrifice. He is the great one and final sacrifice for his people. All of this stuff, all of it is a big flashing arrow to our Lord Jesus, which then makes sense of all the Old Testament and New Testament practices into, uh, uh, right into the person of Jesus as he reveals us the Father and the Son. This is not a call to earn or buy. That's why I read those scriptures. It's not a call to, be, um, to deserve it, to, to be prepared enough or good enough. It's a call to come as you are, to come and sit at the feet and in the arms of the one who loves, the one who poured out his life for us, his death and resurrection for us, with more mercy than we could imagine, 
He calls himself and he calls us to himself and to his Father through the power of the Spirit. Because that's where we'll find life. I need you to hear this. I don't care what you did last night or this morning, however broken it is. The God of the living universe is calling you to come to him and find home in him. He'll take care of all that stuff. We still have a confession and assurance and consecration and we eat with him at the supper and we have a commissioning. You know, we've got all that stuff these days. But do not be confused. Whether you're worried about some business deal you did, whether you're worried about what you looked at last night, whatever you took into your body, you're called the same because it's based on his love and kindness, not your performance. course this means that if we walk in here and we're like I'm feeling really good about myself I think God's really happy I'm here maybe a merit badge is due you know I mean it is like an hour an hour and a half if he keeps preaching of my Sunday obviously that's a problem but what it does mean is that you can come broken and weak and half-hearted and troubled and unsure. And what's promised to you is the holiness which the earth shakes and the intimacy of the one who forgives your every sin. He will be here for that. Will you be here for it? I don't know what this does for your expectations and preparations, Goodness, I do not want to give you a list of anything. But just, I, don't, I could give you the list of the things to do, but what I'm trying to do is actually explain to you that what's actually happening. And then you can create your own lists about how you want to order your life toward that. Might you have a different expectation for the very first words of worship? and what it could mean. I don't get it all, but I get that it is true, and it's been true for millennia. And it's even more clearly true because of the person of Jesus. Each Sunday, let the glory of this fact shatter your doubts of whether you are welcome and shatter all your self-righteousness if you're welcome because you're good enough to be here. His robe fills the temple first, to use psalm language. His presence comes first. Sorry, that was Isaiah language. His presence comes first. He is the prime mover. If he didn't call us, we wouldn't come. And whether you're feeling especially spiritually awesome or depraved, heavy laden, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, bruised and mangled by the fall. I want you to hear his words. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, it's so simple, and there's, it's just, it's like sometimes only like a minute that you teach us to prepare to be called by your glory and your love. Help us lean into it, Lord, to believe it, to have some different kind of expectations, to tell our children about it, to believe it ourselves. Would you transform our minds, bodies, hearts, souls, emotions, that we might have that kind of expectation? Because it seems like you've said it's true in your word throughout the ages. We really want to respond to that. Teach us, show us, help us believe that it is true. That you call us because you love us. And you want to transform us more and more after your image. We pray in your name.